This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey guys, this is Lane, and you are listening to the Simple Passive Casual Podcast. Today we've got Paul Moore on the line. Paul. Hey, how are you, Lane? Yeah, so Paul's a returning guest, and uh, we kind of wanted to just kind of bring him on and go into a couple of topics that I've been thinking about lately. You know, I just got back from Dallas yesterday, and the whole reason I go to these trips is to kind of get around people like Paul and you know, people who are active to the deals, getting in the room with them. People aren't even looking in Dallas for deals anymore. I mean, that ship sailed six to 12 months ago. Yeah. Unless you want to bang your head against the wall. So those things... Property managers, people are using, you know, are the things that I kind of go and you know, drink some beers at the bar. You know, today's uh, Monday morning, and, you know, we're not at the bar now, but I hopefully have fun to bring Paul on, who's uh, also an apartment investor, an engineer too. He's got his own podcast, How to Lose Money. That we talk about what's been changing with your business a little bit as the market's been changing and trends to look for in the future for the folks listening. Paul, maybe I'll start us out with something, you know, because since your podcast is the how to lose money podcast what's something that stuck out in your mind lately <laughs> hopefully you can uh, randomly protect somebody from losing money in the future oh uh, yeah so yeah we do have a wealth building podcast called how to lose money where we talk about you know how people lost time money relationships or business and how our listeners can not replicate that mistake or whatever was done to them and in this case something was done to this guy one of my investors is a great doctor out of near Atlanta. And he, like a lot of doctors, they're really busy. They have a lot of money. They really want to make passive cash flow, but they tend to get taken advantage of. And I don't know how it happened, but he heard about this investment opportunity from somebody else. And he thought, well, that's convenient. He just threw the money in, you know, he invested with this guy, the syndicator. They didn't get the returns they expected and then they stopped hearing communications back. And then they, he somehow, I don't know if it was from an email where they were all copied, but he got the other email addresses from the other investors and they started comparing notes. They started doing conference calls and they, they started investigating and they realized this guy was going to Hawaii, putting vacations on the tab of the company. And he was just, he was a real crook. And they basically took him to court. They sold the apartments, but they never, they never got, they only got a fraction of their money back. It was a real tragic story. So when he came to me, you know, he was very careful, very suspicious. And he looked very, very carefully at us, at me, at our company and, and all that. And I'm glad to say he's invested at least once now, maybe twice. But I hate, he, he was on our podcast and it was painful for him to talk about it. But a lot, like a lot of our guests, when he talked about it, he said, he kind of exhaled at the end and said, you know, I haven't talked about that in a long time. And it was really, it was really good to talk about it. So that's one thing we do. We serve our guests by allowing them to tell painful stories and get stuff off their chest. And Lane, you were on. Yeah. What was yeah. it like for you? I think I talked about how I lost money as a limit partner and how I lost 40,000. And I, my article on that is simplepassivecashflow.com backslash fail. Uh, I just want to read that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's good to talk about these kinds of things. I mean, it's not very PC to kind of talk about the person who it was, but the, the instance, the circumstances, right. what, what were the mistakes made? 
Yeah. And while we're on the topic, you know, there's another um, character that a lot of the other investors kind of started to talk about recently. This guy, he did like a, you know, taking money in for deals, ran a meetup where they actually gave pretty good advice about construction and, you know, building Gantt charts and all everything that you wanted to. And it's funny because you go back and you look at all these Facebook email threads and everyone's like, yeah, this guy's the greatest guy in the world. He's so friendly. I love him. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I, I'm the kind of guy who likes to go back and take all the screenshots of all these these people kind of just jumping on the bandwagon of this sleet shyster. And I think it was a complete Ponzi scheme at the end of it, but you know, it's, wow. it's hard. I mean, it's really hard. How do people think they can get away with that anyway? I mean, if it's something that goes wrong, I get it. But if it's planned as a Ponzi scheme, they always get caught, don't they? I guess. I mean, I think that's why I like to work with guys, guys like yourself, like, you know, engineers, professionals, they've walked away. They have a job. They're doing it more because it's, you know, they can scratch it entrepreneur itch. But it seems like when you work with guys who come up from nothing, they don't really have anything to lose, it seems like. They go to a lot of trainings. They get, you know, they go and write books. They build the social profile. They, they do everything right. And it's all construction out of nowhere. That's true. But there, I mean, I just listened to the um, How I Built This podcast last night and listened to Barbara Corcoran's story, you know, the, what's her title, the queen of New York city real estate or something. And she came up from nothing and she's apparently done very, very well and done very well for investors as well. So, yeah, I mean, let me uh, ask you, it's hard to know. It's happened a few times to me that, you know, when got this platform, people want to reach out to you. You're talking on the phone with them for the first time and something's just not right. Phone up and you Google them on the side and there's really nothing on them. And has that ever happened to you? And you're kind of like, oh, yeah. this guy, you know. Yeah, well, you know, not in this business, but 22 years ago, there was a guy who I actually sensed something wasn't right. I was like 32 years old, going to make my biggest sale of all time in my previous company. For time's sake, I won't get into what it was. I could sense something wasn't right. And then something his company controller said to me, I should have listened. You know, of course, you can kick yourself two years later, you know, when you're in court with him. You know, this guy scammed us out of like $2 million uh, of payroll money that we, I think it was actually one point something million. And we spent a good deal of time, wasted unbelievable amount of time in court. And he, and he was completely in the wrong and he had to pay it back. It took him four years to pay us back. But, you know, I should have known. And what I didn't know at the time is, Lane, I believe we were created and designed with this incredible ability to read things, situations, people. Quantum physics is showing all these amazing things that our brain can do. You know, the the book by Malcolm Gladwell, Blink. We can sense things, but sometimes as men especially, I'm not knocking men over women, but women have a better sense, and sometimes wives in particular have a better sense for when we're being conned or scammed. And men just sometimes override that and say, look, these numbers are amazing. I'm going to do this. I have a funny feeling about this guy, but I'm going to do this anyway. And that's the worst thing to do because your, your gut has incredible power to discern when someone's lying. They can see something wrong in what people are saying. And Lane, I'm going to go off script here for a second. <laughs> I heard Rabbi Daniel Lappin. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's an amazing business guy, coach, mentor. He's this amazing rabbi. And he said, that's why we shouldn't swear. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? Why should we shouldn't? He said, yeah, if you're dropping the F-bomb all the time in the bar or with your friends, 
when you're in a sales situation and, and the guy interrupts and says, I would never do that. I would never swear and drop the F-bomb in a sales situation. He said, what happens is if you're used to it, you make tiny, imperceptibly short pauses for microseconds in your sentences where you would have dropped the F-bomb normally. People sense that as insincerity. They don't trust you. And people that do that, it's proven, I guess, make lower sales. Crazy, huh? huh? I mean, it's kind of like, Whoever you are, just be it all the time. Yeah, that's right. Whoever you are today, you're going to be in the future when you make your millions. So start being the right, honest person today. So we wanted to bring you on because you're kind of making this transition. And I've seen a lot of people come into the multifamily space myself. And it just seems like, man, it just it's the logical progression from going from single family yeah. to multifamily apartments. And it's a very crowded space. And recently, you know, you've switched over to the self-storage. Let me tell me a little bit, some, what were some of the signs that you were seeing why multifamily was getting a little bit overheated? And let me, let me kind of just caveat this. The podcast list is going to say, oh, yeah, we're get out of multifamily, get into the next thing, you know, but not saying that. Mm-hmm. You know, no, saying not here. saying that. Exactly. Like be more, just be mindful of this and to go in and, and at a watchful eye at these multifamily deals. Absolutely. I mean, how many hours do we have here to talk about the, all the overheated signs? But seriously, there, I think, I mean, everybody knows, you know, where we are now, July of 2018, when we're recording this, it's very, very overheated. Every sign is out there that it's overheated. Basically, people are overpaying for deals. And I tried to analyze for my investors recently why. Uh, number one, for one thing, there's international money coming into the space. And some of them, not many, but some are willing to overpay just to get out of their currency into the U.S. dollar. And of course, that comes and goes, and it's up and down at different times. But I had Chinese investors literally say, we don't care if we break even on an apartment. Zero percent return will be okay with us as long as we can get out of the Chinese yuan into the U.S. dollar. Again, that's not everybody, but it happens. And that means, how can I compete with that when I need to get you know a 5 or 10% cash on cash return? Second, there's people with 1031 exchange money. There's a record number of people selling right now because it's such a high, hot market. People are selling. They have 1031 money. They want to avoid a huge tax bill. Third, there's people with self-directed IRAs. They're more popular than ever. And fourth, there are some, speaking of unscrupulous people, there's some syndicators out there who are willing I'm not saying they're cooking the books, but they're, um, they might be skewing the numbers a tiny bit to just get deals and make the fees. And the investors have to pay that price for the next 10 years. And uh, in addition to that, multifamily is so hot, there's a lot of people getting into it. Some lesser experienced people don't know that they're overpaying for a deal. And some of the, you know, we've talked about in the past on the podcast, I call that cap rate gate. Kind of yeah. the numbers are being manipulated with the conversion cap rate. Yes, exactly. Um, but, you know, as a, as a limit partner, it's very hard to discern exactly, you know, how, how are the levers being pulled behind the scenes? You know, when a deal goes out and you kind of put your numbers to it, it, it always gets to a best and final situation because most of these right. are done by a broker and it's always the same players and you try and sharpen your pencil or try and like see how, how best you can you know increase the value and to get that higher price to be able to bid the highest. Right. I was like, shoot that guy, that guy won again. That guy won. Yeah. Again. Right. So the guy's doing deals all the time. You know, he's obviously just using a different pencil or using different numbers. Right. I think yeah, that's, that's true. Me, that's the biggest sign. Yeah, I think you're right. 
And so what happened for us, I mean, look, Lane, I wrote a book called The Perfect Investment, all about multifamily. And now I'm saying, hey, when is the perfect investment perhaps not so perfect? And the answer is when you can't find any deals. I mean, we've got about 200 invest, 215 investors, I think, looking to invest money. And if we can't find a multifamily deal that makes sense, we're not going to overpay. I'm not going to knowingly overpay for an asset and then have to look my family, myself, my investors in the eye for the next 10 years or more and, and say, I'm sorry. It's just not worth it. I, what I always say, I'm sort of like an agnostics investor. You know, multifamily is how I kind of got into it, how I started to learn about P&Ls. But, hey, there's a different world out there. There's self-storage, there's mobile home parks, there's assisted right. living, there's life settlements, and there's all kinds yeah. of things out there you can invest. You can right. invest in windmill farms and, yeah. Yeah. and oil and gas. But within the real, real estate, there's, there's only a few. And talk a little bit about the self-storage thing. Moving from apartments to self-storage, what really caught your eye first? Well, you know... I had a guy call me and he said, I, I, he started talking about self-storage and I rolled my eyes. I wasn't on video. And uh, I told him that later. And I said, I really, you know, I'm just all about multifamily. And he goes, well, so am I. I've been about all about multifamily for years, longer than, than I, Paul, have. And he said, but I'm looking into self-storage because I can't find any deals. And let me tell you about it. And he started to tell me about it. And I realized, wait, this, this may be a great alternative. First of all, it has very similar risk return profile. During the recession, it actually did very well because think about it, when people were downsizing from a 4,000 square foot home to an apartment or a 2,000 square foot home, they needed a place to put their stuff, number one. Number two, there were people who, a lot of these people realized that this was just temporary. Hey, I'm just downsizing for a while. I just need a self-storage place for three to six months. By the way, those same people are typically in their storage units for years, which is another advantage to self-storage, by the way, because people are in it longer and there's only a month-to-month lease, which means you can raise the rent. Speaking of which, if you raise the rent on a multifamily deal, if you, like if you have a, an apartment, you raise a tenant's rent 6%, well, it might go up from 1000 to uh, 1060 They may move for that because they may know they're going to be there and they're going to be renting for years. A typical self-storage client, on the other hand, thinks I'm only going to be here two or three or four more months, number one. And number two, they think, why would I rent a U-Haul, have to buy a 12-pack for my friends, waste a Saturday to go move my stuff from my $100 storage unit that just went up to 106 to move down the street to save $6 a month? They're not going to do it. That Planet Fitness theory, right? Like they yes. come in. They're under 24 fitness or gold's gym. And then they, they, they're, I don't know what they're trying, like 20 bucks. Yeah. Bigger. Like people will not bother even canceling this thing. Right. 20 bucks. Yeah. It's under that, and, that threshold. And they think I'm going to start working out when next month. Yeah. Maybe next week, maybe tomorrow. It's more of a hassle to call them or walk in I there know. and turn it off for a few mm-hmm. months. And to turn it back on. It's the same with self-storage. I, I, one investor who invested in this deal in Atlanta said to me, he said, I am going to invest in this because I just realized while I was talking to you that I've had a self-storage unit for seven years and I forgot about it. It was been hitting my credit card that whole time. Not a good reason to invest, by the, by the way. But at any rate, it, it did convince him. Now, another thing about self-storage lane is this. 
multifamily is obviously very, very popular. People of all walks of life all around the world are chasing U.S. multifamily. Check this out. Self-storage has about 53,000 facilities around the U.S. That's the same as Starbucks, Subway, and McDonald's combined. Yet, 40,000 or so, about 75 to 80%, are still run by independent operators and mom and pops, okay? And what I've figured out is it's really easy to run a mediocre self-storage facility, but it's really complex and hard to run a fantastic one. So what we've done is we're partnering with an operator who is running fantastic self-storage facilities, and they're able to buy these mom-and-pop facilities for a good price, and they're able to add U-Haul, which adds two or 3000 a month in income right away. They're able to change policies and procedures like collecting admin fees, collecting late fees, uh, raising the rent by 6% sometimes raising the rent by 6% a couple times a year. They're able to, just by these policy changes, raise the income and therefore the value of these facilities significantly. These operators, these great operators, the one we picked, I I think is particularly great. They're getting phenomenal returns, the kind of returns that multifamily did from, let's say, 2010 to 2015 when they were just going up so fast and there was so much room to grow. Some of these self-storage operators, like the one we're working with, are doing that. And so we're what we're doing is we're telling our multifamily investors, hey, we love apartments. We're still doing apartments. But until we can find our next good deal, why don't we take a couple million dollars and place it over with this operator? And so that's what we're doing right now. And so far, so good. You know, what I really liked about self-storage is this Amazon effect. You know, people are just, just click a button, they just buy it. Yeah. This stuff just piles up in their house, piles up in their house. And, uh, and, yeah. And in a way, like the self-storage is sort of like vesting with collateral. You've got their collateral in there. Oftentimes the stuff in the storage yeah. worth more than... Mm-hmm. The, the unit right so they're gonna yeah and it's easier to evict the tenants too it's not i mean the laws you know i mean take california laws you know it takes five to eight months sometimes to get a tenant out of an apartment in california if they play the game but with self-storage i mean i don't know about california but with self-storage it is much easier to evict a tenant as well i mean it's more like how do how do you collect the debt, right? That's that's kind of right. like, you know, when you're looking at a foreclosure, it's, is, is it a judicial state or is it non judicial? Yeah. You don't really look at that in this case, but it's more how do you, how does the state look at collecting? So, you know, we'll, we'll, I just want to hit the point again, you know, the, the whole thing is you're not, you're not trading in all your multifamily apartment holdings, no. calling up this, your syndicator and saying, I need to liquidate all my property. <laughs> right. Because that's almost not embarrassing in no. the first place. If someone were to make, you know, someone new were to come up to you and they had a $500,000 inheritance and you had to quickly invest the whole thing, what percentages would be, you'd be kind of putting it into apartments and mobile home or self-storage or maybe other investments? Okay. So if I could find multifamily deals that met our criteria, I would consider maybe 200000 in multifamily 200,000, especially a steep value add multifamily, and then 200,000 in a performing self-storage that has a value add component, meaning it has a lot of room to grow, like the runway I talked about growing. You know, another thing is selling all the point of sale items like boxes, tapes, scissors, et cetera. I should have mentioned that. So maybe 200,000 in self-storage. And then I would consider putting another 100,000 in mobile home parks 
you know, maybe investing in a, an already performing mobile home park that's just clipping coupons away at, you know, maybe a 12% rate. So something like that. I think that would be a good mix. Not, not, you know, not assuming any holding on any cash. This is just investing $500,000. And, and I think I kind of agree there too. Depends what your knowledge and network is. If you know a lot about apartments or you have a right. lot of network in that space, at, at the end of the day, half of it is with the people. So if you can verify right. people more in one space than the other, go with that. But with all things being equal, I, I think I kind of agree with your the way you're heading yeah. there. Yeah, I think, Lane, I think the, you just hit it right on the head, and that is the number one thing to do as a passive or even a, a very involved passive investor is to really, really carefully check out the sponsor. It is worth the plane tickets. Go look them in the eye. It is worth it to call some of their investors and dig around online or wherever and find investors they didn't even give you and call them. Check them out carefully. If you can find a phenomenal sponsor, you could possibly invest with them for years and years. You wouldn't have to know. If you really, really trusted them, really, you wouldn't have to know all the details of every deal. It's good to know the details, but you wouldn't have to be able to uncover every single last line item of a deal if you trusted them and they really were trustworthy. I mean, that's what Buffett does, right? Buffett throws money at great operators with great products. I mean, he knows the market and all that stuff, but he trusts the people too. I mean, look at some of the deals he's done on a handshake. So let's talk about a little bit of the numbers with the self-storage. And, you know, from a high level, what I've noticed of the difference is if you're talking multifamily is 80 to 100% return in five years, kind of that double your money tagline. It was said a lot of times. Maybe not be as true today. You know, I think I think with self storage, you're kind of hitting the same numbers. You know, fifteen to twenty percent a year for a good run. I think mm-hmm. the only difference between and correct me if I'm wrong is self storage is you might have it might be a little bit longer positioning time. So instead of a five year, like more of a seven year window, but the cash flow is stronger, weaker in that time frame. Sure, your thoughts. I'd say, you know, so the company we operate, you know, that we're investing with has actually had a, really enough, I think, because they're able to buy these mom and pop deals and against the current operators, but they were operating okay. They're able to raise the income so fast just by policy changes and sometimes by building an additional building. So like one of their deals had an additional two acres. The whole market was, you know, it was, it was under supplied so they built an additional building or two i mean that was a nice value add but they've been actually able to turn some of these things for 100 to 150 percent total return in under three years now lane that's not normal okay but they've been able to do that about six of the last eight deals from what i understand in general i would say you're right it's probably more like a five to seven year hold would be more normal how's the cash flow in in from some of these, you know, non-recourse, multifamily yeah. deals to like the self-storage, is it about the same? Or yeah, it's very similar. I mean, some of these value-add deals have a one or two percent cash flow in year one, but then they jump right up to seven to nine percent in year two, and then maybe eight to twelve percent after that. Yeah. And there's you know interest-only loans, and you know you can lock in and you know a, a good interest rate with Fannie and Freddie, just like multifamily. Yeah, that, that interest only the first three years in some of these deals is nice. I mean, it artificially yeah. pumps up the, th- the first three years 
Agreed. Sometimes it'll drop off at your four. People will be like, what the heck? You know, like just yeah. the self-storage. I mean, I mean, it's the same, it's the same game, the self-storage. It's the, the business plans are going there, repositioning, stabilize the, the business right. and then sell it off to a big re like a self-storage or public. What, what are the big cube space? Well, public storage owns, this is another thing I love. Public storage owns 7% of the nationwide market. Last I checked. And then the next, except for one that may be at 2%, the, the next 10 are at about 1% each. So you've got 17% of the market, maybe, maybe up to 20% of the market owned by the largest 11 players. And then it's mostly independent or smaller operators. In Qt space, they actually do a lot of the property management, right? For yeah, a lot they of do. Smaller yeah, extra space does, Cube space does, others, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting how the big players, they have kind of taken that operation side on as part of the business. Yeah, so the ideal, I think the ideal place to be, in my opinion, is to buy one of these, I mean, to invest with somebody who's buying from a mom and pop, and then they're able to dramatically increase the income, stabilize it, get it running like a top, put that together with five other deals, and then sell the whole package to a REIT, say four to seven years. To right. me, that's the ideal play. And there's so many, 53,000 self-storage facilities in the U.S., so many to choose from. Unlike multifamily, it's so hard to find one right now. Kind of makes you think if those, uh, those big REITs, since they're in the operations space, they put their new staff to work out the kinks in uh, yeah. the mom-pa operator guys. <laughs> yeah. And they have them come to the big show with their own. But Yeah, you know, they can, but... From what I've heard, a lot of the REITs and life insurance companies and such, they're not looking for that huge value add. They're looking to buy something stabilized they can count on from day one. And they're willing to live with a 5% return in some cases, rather than the, you know, the, the high, have the high risk and hassle of all the operations changes, et cetera. Yeah. To me, that's a good way to go. That's a good model for multifamily as well. Yeah. So where do you think this economy is going? And are you going to be getting out of all multifamily at some point or? No, I love multifamily. I mean, I plan to be investing in it till, uh, for 46 more years. I'm 54, by the way. 46 or 90, right? No, 100. Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, you're, you're, you're a very successful investor and you know, some of my, my buddies and I talk and we always say at some point we'll just stop really investing, putting the gas to the pedal and just put it in cruise control. What's your thoughts on that? You know, I mean, I, I know you came up with a lot of other investors. Were there a lot yeah. of investors like that, that just kind of, you know, they got their $10,000 a month and then yeah. kind of faded away. And Yeah, there's a lot of people like that. But I figure while I'm using up air on the planet and while my heart's beating, I figure I might as well change the world. I don't know how much you've heard about human trafficking. I think we've talked about it before, Lane, but... For you guys out don't know, Paul... Maybe you can explain the profit sharing. So, I mean, I figure, I figure I want to continue to push as hard as I can as long as I'm on the planet to, to do something good. You know, I mean, if I was alive in the 1800s, I would want to be an abolitionist fighting against slavery and fighting for civil rights. So if I was in the 1960s as an adult, I would too. Do you know if you took the record profits of Starbucks, General Motors, Apple, and Nike, and took the record year profits, put those together and doubled that number. That's the approximate annual revenue from human trafficking lane. Mm. It is huge. And so it's not as obvious as what happened 
folks who were, you know, the victims of slavery in the U.S. and civil rights problems and all that. It's not as obvious, but to those people, it's just as horrifying. They're, I don't want to get into the horrors they endure, but we're talking about 36 million people worldwide and 2 million more per year being trafficked. I'm actually working with an organization called Freedom Place. You can look it up at freedomplaceproject.com. I just joined their board. We're planning on building a billion-dollar office complex in Dallas and using all the syndicators' profits, 100% of the internal profits that we make, not the investors and the architects and the construction profits. Obviously, those go to those folks. But we're going to use 100% of our profits, which is we're estimating 100 to $125 million to go to fight human trafficking, and rescue its victims. And then, Lane, we plan to do it again and again and again around the U.S. Yeah, and then something like that is kind of interesting. Like, you know, how did you write it into each PPM or what, what mechanism did you use? We're actually not writing it into the PPM. It's just that we are planning internally on donating a large percentage of our profits, as my partners and I already do, to these causes that we're passionate about. My partner is very passionate about rescuing orphans and he wants to start orphanages. So he's going to take a lot of his profits and do that. He's already rescued eight orphans himself. So he puts his money where his mouth is. So you guys just made your own uh, nonprofit. I don't forget which tax. Yeah, I have a profit. Yeah, I have a 501c3. I have a nonprofit called Gateway Intercultural Services and we don't take any donations. I mean, we just have it set up and we could, but it's not like we're trying to get money. But I'm really more excited, you know, right now, like I said, about Freedom Place Project and working on that. There's no, there's no way people can contribute to that, but I'd love people to go to the website and check it out. Let the, let the folks know your email and that website one more time. And yeah, any parting thoughts? For yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, freedomplaceproject.com. I'm working with Ben Briggs from Sotheby's Real Estate. Uh, he's in Dallas. He's actually on the ground in China. His operation's actually in Dallas. Uh, my company's website is wellingscapital.com. My email address is paul at wellingscapital.com. Our podcast is How to Lose Money. My book is The Perfect Investment. Parting thoughts. Don't swing for the fences, or at least not with all your capital, because if you continue to swing for the fences, you're going to strike out. And if you have all your capital sunk into that, you'll have to start over. And like Robert Kiyosaki said, if you make a million dollars when you're 30 and lose it all when you're 40, you have nothing left to play with except the opportunity to start over again and start building. And that's what so many people do. The beauty of real estate, you don't have to do that in real estate. It's not like crypto and other things where you're really taking huge risks. But with real estate, you can buy things that have a known value because they have a known cash flow. And that's what I love about real estate. And so just to kind of recap things, you know, we talked about multifamily kind of getting a little overheated and kind of going against the grain a little bit. One of those options is self-storage. What was that that quote you said one more time by Buffett? So Warren Buffett, yeah, Warren Buffett said, I, thank you. I, he said, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Right now, a lot of the world is being really greedy about multifamily. So, you know, I don't want to say be fearful because I'm not a proponent of fear, but I am a proponent of being incredibly, incredibly careful. And I got to tell you, Lane, I've asked my partners this seriously. If nobody is overbidding, like if nobody's overwilling to pay for this multifamily asset in this market, then something's wrong. 
I've got to keep digging and figure out why is nobody overpaying. I mean, we've looked at all kinds of deals that, you know, we think should sell for 10 million, let's say, and people are bidding 11 or 12 million. And if they're not, I'm going to keep digging and find out why. And hopefully maybe there's an opportunity there, but wouldn't be so sure. So these are the kind of the conversations you guys get by increasing your network. So um, if you guys can, please share it with your friends. I know you guys don't like to put it on social media because you guys are all afraid that your friends think that your or your coworkers will think you're going to leave the day job. Privately email out to your friends, introduce <laughs> them to it. <laughs> we'll see you guys next time. All right. Thanks, Lane. Bye. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.